Part One of the Entail in Weird Tales, Volume One by E. T. A. Hoffman, translated by J. T. Bilby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Cobland. The Entail, not far from the shore of the Baltic Sea, is situated the ancestral castle of the noble family von Arblank, called Arblanksitten. It is a wild and desolate neighborhood hardly anything more than a single blade of grass shooting up here and there from the bottomless drift sand, and instead of the garden that generally ornaments a baronial residence, the bare walls are approached on the landward side by a thin forest of firs that with their never-changing vesture of gloom despise the bright garniture of spring, and where instead of the joyous caroling of little birds awakened anew to gladness, nothing is heard but the ominous croak of the raven and the whirring scream of the storm-boding seagull. A quarter of a mile distant, nature suddenly changes. As if by the wave of a magician's wand, you are transported into the midst of thriving fields, fertile arable land, and meadows. You see, too, the large and prosperous village, with the land steward's spacious dwelling-house. And, at the angle of a pleasant thicket of alders you may observe the foundations of a large castle, which one of the former proprietors had intended to erect. His successors, however, living on their property in Courland, left the building in its unfinished state. Nor would Freiherr Roderick von Arblank proceed with the structure. Note, Freiherr equals Baron, though not exactly in the present significance of the term in Germany. A Freiherr belongs to the superior nobility, and is a baron of the older nobility of the Middle Ages, and he ranks immediately after a Count Graf. The title baron is now restricted to comparatively newer creations, and its bearer belongs to the lower nobility. In this tale, Freiherr and baron are used indifferently. Return to text. Nor would Freiherr Roderick von Arblank proceed with the structure, when he again took up his residence on the ancestral estate, since the lonely old castle was more suitable to his temperament, which was morose and averse to human society. He had its ruinous walls repaired as well as circumstances would permit, and then shut himself up within them along with a cross-grained house-steward and a slender establishment of servants. He was seldom seen in the village, but on the other hand he often walked and rode along the sea-beach, and people claimed to have heard him from a distance, talking to the waves and listening to the rolling and hissing of the surf, as though he could hear the answering voice of the spirit of the sea. Upon the topmost summit of the watch-tower he had a sort of study fitted up and supplied with telescopes, with a complete set of astronomical apparatus, in fact. Thence, during the daytime, he frequently watched the ships sailing past on the distant horizon like white-winged seagulls, and there he spent the starlight nights engaged in astronomical, or, as some professed to know, with astrological labors, in which the old house-steward assisted him. At any rate, the rumor was current during his own lifetime that he was devoted to the occult scientists, or the so-called black art, and that he had been driven out of Courland in consequence of the failure of an experiment by which an august princely house had been most seriously offended. The slightest allusion to his residence in Courland filled him with horror. But for all the troubles which had there unhinged the tenor of his life, 
he held his predecessors entirely to blame, in that they had wickedly deserted the home of their ancestors. In order to fetter for the future at least the head of the family to the ancestral castle, he converted it into a property of entail. The sovereign was the more willing to ratify this arrangement, since by its means he would secure for his country a family distinguished for all chivalrous virtues, and which had already begun to ramify into foreign countries. Neither Roderick's son, Hubert, nor the next Roderick, who was so called after his grandfather, would live in their ancestral castle. Both preferred Courland. It is conceivable, too, that, being more cheerful and fond of life than the gloomy astrologer, they were repelled by the grim loneliness of the place. Freiherr Roderick had granted shelter and subsistence on the property to two old maids, sisters of his father, who were living in indigence, having been but niggardly provided for. They, together with an aged serving woman, occupied the small warm rooms of one of the wings. Besides them and the cook, who had a large apartment on the ground floor adjoining the kitchen, the only other person was a worn-out chasseur, who tottered about through the lofty rooms and halls of the main building, and discharged the duties of a castellan. The rest of the servants lived in the village with the land steward. The only time at which the desolated and deserted castle became the scene of life and activity was late in autumn, when the snow first began to fall and the season for wolf-hunting and boar-hunting arrived. Then came Freiherr Roderick with his wife, attended by relatives and friends and a numerous retinue from Courland. The neighboring nobility, and even amateur lovers of the chase who lived in the town hard by, came down in such numbers that the main building, together with the wings, barely sufficed to hold the crowd of guests. Well-served fires roared in all the stoves and fireplaces, while the spits were creaking from early dawn until late at night, and hundreds of light-hearted people, masters and servants, were running up and down stairs. Here was heard the jingling and rattling of drinking glasses and jovial hunting choruses. There the footsteps of those dancing to the sound of the shrill music. Everywhere loud mirth and jollity, so that for four or five weeks together the castle was more like a first-rate hostelry situated on a main high road than the abode of a country gentleman. This time, Freiherr Roderick devoted as well as he was able to serious business, for, withdrawing from the revelry of his guests, he discharged the duties attached to his position as Lord of the Entail. He not only had a complete statement of the revenues laid before him, but he listened to every proposal for improvement and to every the least complaint of his tenants, endeavoring to establish order in everything, and check all wrongdoing and injustice as far as lay in his power. In these matters of business he was honestly assisted by the old advocate V. Blank, who had been law agent of the R. Blank family, and Justice Charius of their estates in P. Blank, from father to son for many years. Note, the Justice Charius acted as judiciary in the seigneurial courts of justice, which were amongst the privileges accorded to the nobility of certain ranks in certain cases by the feudal institutions of the Middle Ages. This privilege, the Arblank family is represented as exercising. Return to text. Accordingly, V. Blank was one to set out for the estate at least a week before the day fixed for the arrival of the Freiherr. In the year 1790 Blank, the time came around again when old V. Blank was to start on his journey for Arblank Sitten. 
however strong and healthy the old man, now seventy years of age, might feel, he was yet quite assured that a helping hand would prove beneficial to him in his business. So he said to me one day, as if in jest, Cousin, I was his great nephew, but he called me Cousin, owing to the fact that his own Christian name and mine were both the same. Cousin, I was thinking it would not be amiss if you went along with me to our blank and felt the sea breezes blow about your ears a bit. Besides giving me good help in my often laborious work, you may for once in a while see how you like the rollicking life of a hunter, and how, after drawing up a neatly written protocol one morning, you will frame the next when you come to look in the glaring eyes of such a sturdy brute as a grim shaggy wolf, or a wild boar gnashing his teeth, and whether you know how to bring him down with a well-aimed shot. Of course I could not have heard such strange accounts of the merry hunting parties at Arblank Sitton, or entertained such a true heartfelt affection for my excellent old great-uncle as I did, without being highly delighted that he wanted to take me with him this time. As I was already pretty well skilled in the sort of business he had to transact, I promised to work with unwearied industry so as to relieve him of all care and trouble. Next day we sat in the carriage on our way to Arblank Sitton, all wrapped up in good fur coats, driving through a thick snowstorm, the first harbinger of the coming winter. On the journey, the old gentleman told me many remarkable stories about the Freiherr Broderick, who had established the estate tale, and appointed him, V. Blank, in spite of his youth, to be his justiciarius and executor. He spoke of the harsh and violent character of the old nobleman, which seemed to be inherited by all the family, since even the present master of the estate, whom he had known as a mild-tempered and almost effeminate youth, acquired more and more as the years went by the same disposition. He therefore recommended me strongly to behave with as much resolute self-reliance and as little embarrassment as possible if I desired to possess any consideration in the Freiherr's eyes. And at length he began to describe the apartments in the castle which he had selected to be his own once for all, since they were warm and comfortable and so conveniently retired that we could withdraw from the noisy convivialities of the hilarious company whenever we pleased. The rooms, namely, which were on every visit reserved for him, were two small ones, hung with warm tapestry, close beside the large hall of justice, in the wing opposite that in which the two old maids resided. At last, after a rapid but wearying journey, we arrived at Arblanksitten late at night. We drove through the village. It was Sunday and from the alehouse proceeded the sounds of music and dancing and merrymaking. The steward's house was lit up from basement to garret, and music and song were there too. All the more striking, therefore, was the inhospitable desolation into which we now drove. The sea-wind howled in sharp-cutting dirges, as it were, about us, whilst the sombre firs, as if they had been roused by the wind from a deep magic trance, groaned hoarsely in a responsive chorus. The bare black walls of the castle towered above the snow-covered ground. We drew up at the gates, which were fast locked. But no shouting or cracking of whips, no knocking or hammering, was of any avail. The whole castle seemed to be dead. Not a single light was visible at any of the windows. The old gentleman shouted in his strong, stentorian voice, Francis! Francis! Where the deuce are you? In the devil's name, rouse yourself. We are all freezing here outside the gates. The snow is cutting our faces till they bleed. 
Why the devil don't you stir yourself? Then the watchdog began to whine, and a wandering light was visible on the ground floor. There was a rattling of keys, and soon the ponderous wings of the gate creaked back on their hinges. Ah, a hearty welcome, a hearty welcome, Herr Justitiarius. Oh, gets rough weather, cried old Francis, holding the lantern above his head, so that the light fell full upon his withered face, which was drawn up into a curious grimace that was meant for a friendly smile. The carriage drove into the court and we got out. Then I obtained a full view of the old servant's extraordinary figure, almost hidden in his wide old-fashioned chasseur livery, with his many extraordinary lace decorations. Whilst there were only a few grey locks on his broad white forehead, the lower part of his face wore the ruddy hue of health, and notwithstanding that the cramped muscles of his face gave it something of the appearance of a whimsical mask, Yet the rather stupid good nature which beamed from his eyes and played about his mouth compensated for all the rest. Now, old Francis, began my great-uncle, knocking the snow from his fur coat in the entrance hall, now, old man, is everything prepared? Have you had the hangings in my room well dusted and the beds carried in? And have you had a big roaring fire both yesterday and today? No, replied Francis quite calmly. No, my worshipful Herr Justitiarius, we've got none of that done. Good heavens, burst out my great-uncle. I wrote to you in proper time. You know that I always come at the time I fix. Here's a fine piece of stupid carelessness. I shall have to sleep in rooms as cold as ice. But you see, worshipful Herr Justitiarius, continued Francis, most carefully clipping a burning thief from the wick of the candle with the snuffers and stamping it out with his foot. But you see, sir... All that would not have been of much good, especially the fires, for the wind and the snow have taken up their quarters too much in the rooms, driving in through the broken windows, and then— What? cried my uncle, interrupting him as he spread out his fur coat and placing his arms akimbo. Do you mean to tell me the windows are broken, and you, the castellan of the house, have done nothing to get them mended? But, worshipful hedges to Charius, resumed the old servant calmly and composedly, but we can't very well get at them, owing to the great masses of stones and rubbish lying all over the room. Damn it all! How come there to be stones and rubbish in my room? cried my uncle. You lasting health and good luck, young gentleman, said the old man, bowing politely to me, as I happened to sneeze. Note. At the present time, the Germans say prosit, under like circumstances. This, of course, reminds one of the Greek custom of regarding sneezing as an auspicious omen. Return to text. But he immediately added, They are the stones and plaster of the partition wall which fell in at the great shock. Have you had an earthquake? blazed up my uncle, now fairly in a rage. No, not an earthquake, worshipful Herr Justicius, replied the old man, grinning all over his face. But three days ago... The heavy wainscot ceiling of the Justice Hall fell in with a tremendous crash. Then made a... My uncle was about to rip out a terrific oath in his violent, passionate manner, but jerking up his right arm above his head and taking off his foxskin cap with his left, he suddenly checked himself, and turning to me, he said with a hearty laugh, By my troth, cousin, we must hold our tongues. We mustn't ask any more questions or else we shall hear of some still worse misfortune, or have the whole castle tumbling to pieces about our ears. But, 
he continued, wheeling round again to the old servant. But bless me, Francis, could you not have had the common sense to get me another room cleaned and warmed? Could you not have quickly fitted up a room in the main building for the court day? All that has been already done, said the old man, pointing to the staircase with a gesture that invited us to follow him, and at once beginning to ascend them. Now, there's a most curious noodle for you, exclaimed my uncle, as we followed old Francis. The way led through long, lofty, vaulted corridors, in the dense darkness of which Francis's flickering light threw a strange reflection. The pillars, capitals, and vari-coloured arches seemed as if they were floating before us in the air. Our own shadows stalked along beside us in gigantic shape and the grotesque paintings on the walls over which they glided seemed all of a tremble and shake, whilst their voices, we could imagine, were whispering in the sound of our echoing footsteps, Wake us not, oh, wake us not, us whimsical spirits who sleep here in these old stones. At last, after we had traversed a long suite of cold and gloomy apartments, Francis opened the door of a hall, in which a fire blazing brightly in the grate offered us, as it were, a home-like welcome with its pleasant crackling. I felt quite comfortable the moment I entered, but my uncle, standing still in the middle of the hall, looked round him and said in a tone which was so very grave as to be almost solemn, And so, this is to be the Justice Hall. Francis held his candle above his head, so that my eye fell upon a light spot in the wide dark wall about the size of a door. Then he said in a pained and muffled voice, Justice has been already dealt out here. What possesses you, old man? asked my uncle, quickly throwing aside his fur coat and drawing near to the fire. It slipped over my lips. I couldn't help it, said Francis. Then he lit the great candles and opened the door of the adjoining room which was very snugly fitted up for our reception. In a short time, a table was spread for us before the fire, and the old man served us with several well-dressed dishes, which were followed by a brimming bowl of punch, prepared in true northern style, a very acceptable sight to two weary travellers like my uncle and myself. My uncle then, tired with his journey, went to bed, as soon as he had finished supper but my spirits were too much excited by the novelty and strangeness of the place, as well as by the punch, for me to think of sleep. Meanwhile, Francis cleared the table, stirred up the fire, and, bowing and scraping politely, left me to myself. Now I sat alone in the lofty, spacious Rittersaal, or Knight's Hall. The snowflakes had ceased to beat against the lattice, and the storm had ceased to whistle. The sky was clear, and the bright full moon shone in through the wide oriel windows, illuminating with magical effect all the dark corners of the curious room into which the dim light of my candles and the fire could not penetrate. As one often finds in old castles, the walls and ceiling of the hall were ornamented in a peculiar antique fashion, the former with fantastic paintings and carvings, gilded and colored in gorgeous tints, the latter with heavy wainscoting. Standing out conspicuously from the great pictures, which represented, for the most part, wild, bloody scenes in bear hunts and wolf hunts, were the heads of men and animals carved in wood and joined on to the painted bodies, so that the whole, especially in the flickering light of the fire and the soft beams of the moon, had an effect as if all were alive and instinct with terrible reality. 
Between these pictures, reliefs of knights have been inserted of life-size, walking along in hunting costume. Probably they were the ancestors of the family who had delighted in the chase. Everything, both in the paintings and in the carved work, bore the dingy hue of extreme old age. So much the more conspicuous, therefore, was the bright, bare place on that one of the walls through which were two doors leading into adjoining apartments. I soon concluded that there, too, there must have been a door that had been bricked up later, and hence it was that this new part of the wall, which had neither been painted like the rest, nor yet ornamented with carvings, formed such a striking contrast with the others. Who does not know with what mysterious power the mind is enthralled in the midst of unusual and singularly strange circumstances? Even the dullest imagination is aroused when it comes into a valley girt round by fantastic rocks, or within the gloomy walls of a church or an abbey, and begins to have glimpses of things it has never yet experienced. When I add that I was twenty years of age and had drunk several glasses of strong punch, it will easily be conceived that as I sat thus in the Rittersaal, I was in a more exceptional frame of mind than I had ever been before. Let the reader picture to himself the stillness of the night within and without the rumbling roar of the sea, the peculiar piping of the wind which rang upon my ears like the tones of a mighty organ played upon by spectral hands, the passing scudding clouds which, shining bright and white, often seemed to peep in through the rattling oriel windows like giants sailing past. In very truth, I felt from the slight shudder which shook me that possibly a new sphere of existences might now be revealed to me visibly and perceptibly. But this feeling was like the shivery sensations that one has on hearing a graphically narrated ghost story, such as we all like. At this moment, it occurred to me that I should never be in a more seasonable mood for reading the book which, in common with everyone who had the least leaning towards the romantic, I at that time carried about in my pocket. I mean, Schiller's Ghost Seer. I read and read, and my imagination grew ever more and more excited. I came to the marvelously enthralling description of the wedding feast at Count von Wieblanck's. Just as I was reading of the entrance of Euronimo's bloody figure, note, this refers to an episode in Schiller's work related by a Sicilian. The story is of a familiar type. Two brothers, Euronimo and Lorenzo, fall in love with the same lady, Antonia. The elder brother is secretly killed by the younger. But on the marriage day of the murderer, the murdered man appears in the disguise of a monk and proceeds to reveal himself in his bloody habiliments and show his ghastly wounds. Return to text. The door leading from the gallery into the antechamber flew open with a tremendous bang. I started to my feet in terror. The book fell from my hands. In the very same moment, however, all was still again, and I began to be ashamed of my childish fears. The door must have been burst open by a strong gust of wind, or in some other natural manner. It is nothing. My overstrained fancy converts every ordinary occurrence into the supernatural. Having thus calmed my fears, I picked up my book from the ground, and again threw myself in the armchair. But there came a sound of soft, slow, measured footsteps moving diagonally across the hall, whilst there was a sighing and moaning at intervals, and in this sighing and moaning there was expressed the deepest trouble, the most hopeless grief that a human being can know. Ah, 
It must be some sick animal locked up somewhere in the basement story. Such acoustic deceptions at night-time, making distant sounds appear close at hand, are well known to everybody. Who will suffer himself to be terrified at such a thing as that? Thus I calmed my fears again. But now there was a scratching at the new portion of the wall, whilst louder and deeper sighs were audible, as if gasped out by someone in the last throes of mortal anguish. Yes, yes, it is some poor animal locked up somewhere. I will shout as loudly as I can. I will stamp violently on the floor. Then all will be still, or else the animal below will make itself heard more distinctly, and in its natural cries, I thought. But the blood ran cold in my veins. The cold sweat, too, stood upon my forehead, and I remained sitting in my chair as if transfixed, quite unable to rise, still less to cry out. At length the abominable scratching ceased, and I again heard the footsteps. Life and motion seemed to be awakened in me. I leapt to my feet and went two or three steps forward, but then there came an ice-cold draught of wind through the hall, whilst at the same moment the moon cast her bright light upon the statue of a grave, if not almost terrible-looking man. And then, as though his warning voice rang through the louder thunders of the waves and the shriller piping of the wind, I heard distinctly, No further, no further, or you will sink beneath all the fearful horrors of the world of specters. Then the door was slammed to with the same violent bang as before, and I plainly heard the footsteps in the anteroom, then going down the stairs. The main door of the castle was opened with a creaking noise, and afterwards closed again. Then it seemed as if a horse were brought out of the stable, and after a while taken back again, and finally all was still. At that same moment, my attention was attracted to my old uncle in the adjoining room. He was groaning and moaning painfully. This brought me fully to consciousness again. I seized the candles and hurried into the room to him. He appeared to be struggling with an ugly, unpleasant dream. "'Wake up! Wake up!' I cried loudly, taking him gently by the hand and letting the full glare of the light fall upon his face. He started up with a stifled shout, and then, looking kindly at me, said, "'Ah, you have done quite right, that you have, cousin, to wake me. I have had a very ugly dream, and it's all solely owing to this room and that hall.' for they made me think of past times, and many wonderful things that have happened here. But now let us turn to, and have a good sound sleep. Therewith the old gentleman rolled himself in the bed covering, and appeared to fall asleep at once. But when I had extinguished the candles, and likewise crept into bed, I heard him praying in a low tone to himself. Next morning we began work in earnest. The land steward brought his account books, and various other people came, some to get a dispute settled, some to get arrangements made about other matters. At noon my uncle took me with him to the wing where the two old baronesses lived, that we might pay our respects to them with all due form. Francis having announced us, we had to wait some time before a little old dame, bent with the weight of her sixty years and attired in gay-coloured silks, who styled herself the noble lady's lady-in-waiting, appeared and led us into the sanctuary. There we were received with comical ceremony by the old ladies, whose curious style of dress had gone out of fashion years and years before. 
I especially was an object of astonishment to them when my uncle, with considerable humor, introduced me as a young lawyer who had come to assist him in his business. Their countenances plainly indicated their belief that, owing to my youth, the welfare of the tenants of Arblankston was placed in jeopardy. Although there was a good deal that was truly ridiculous during the whole of this interview with the old ladies, I was nevertheless still shivering from the terror of the preceding night. I felt as if I had come in contact with an unknown power, or rather as if I had grazed against the outer edge of a circle, one step across which would be enough to plunge me irretrievably into destruction, as though it were only by the exertion of all the power of my will that I should be able to guard myself against that awful dread which never slackens its hold upon you until it ends in incurable insanity. Hence it was that the old baronesses, with their remarkable towering headdresses and their peculiar stuff gowns, tricked off with gay flowers and ribbons, instead of striking me as merely ridiculous, had an appearance that was both ghostly and awe-inspiring. My fancy seemed to glean from their yellow, withered faces and blinking eyes ocular proof of the fact that they had succeeded in establishing themselves on at least a good footing with the ghosts who haunted the castle, as it derived auricular confirmation of the same fact from the wretched French which they croaked, partly between their tightly closed blue lips and partly through their long thin noses, and also that they themselves possessed the power of setting trouble and dire mischief at work. My uncle, who always had a keen eye for a bit of fun, entangled the old dames in his ironical way in such a mishmash of nonsensical rubbish that had I been in any other mood I should not have known how to swallow down my immoderate laughter. But as I have just said, the baronesses and their twaddle were, and continued to be, in my regard, ghostly, so that my old uncle, who was aiming at affording me an especial diversion, glanced across at me, time after time, utterly astonished. So, after dinner, when we were alone together in our room, he burst out, But in heaven's name, cousin, tell me, what is the matter with you? You don't laugh, you don't talk, you don't eat, and you don't drink. Are you ill, or is anything else the matter with you? I now hesitated not a moment to tell him circumstantially of all my terrible, awful experiences of the previous night. I did not conceal anything, and above all, I did not conceal that I had drunk a good deal of punch, and had been reading Schiller's Ghost Seer. This I must confess to, I added, for only so can I credibly explain how it was that my overstrained and active imagination could create all those ghostly spirits which only exist within the sphere of my own brain. I fully expected that my uncle would now pepper me well with the stinging pellets of his wit for this my fanciful ghost-seeing, but on the contrary he grew very grave, and his eyes became riveted in a set stare upon the floor, until he jerked up his head and said, fixing me with his keen, fiery eyes, Your book I am not acquainted with, cousin, but your ghostly visitants were due neither to it nor to the fumes of the punch. I must tell you that I dreamt exactly the same things that you saw and heard. Like you, I sat in the easy chair beside the fire, at least I dreamt so. But what was only revealed to you as slight noises, I saw and distinctly comprehended with the eye of my mind. Yes, I beheld that foul fiend come in, stealthily and feebly step across to the bricked-up door, 
and scratch at the wall in hopeless despair until the blood gushed out from beneath his torn fingernails. Then he went downstairs, took a horse out of the stable, and finally put him back again. Did you also hear the cock crowing in a distant farmyard up at the village? You came and awoke me, and I soon resisted the baneful ghost of that terrible man who is still able to disturb in this fearful way the quiet lives of the living. The old gentleman stopped, and I did not like to ask him further questions, being well aware that he would explain everything to me when he deemed that the proper time was come for doing so. After sitting for a while, deeply absorbed in his own thoughts, he went on, Cousin, do you think you have courage enough to encounter the ghost again, now that you know all that happens, that is to say, along with me? Of course I declared that I now felt quite strong enough, and ready for what he wished. Then let us watch together during the coming night, the old gentleman went on to say. There is a voice within me telling me that this evil spirit must fly not so much before the power of my will as before my courage, which rests upon a basis of firm conviction. I feel that it is not at all presumption in me, but rather a good and pious deed, if I venture life and limb to exorcise this foul fiend that is banishing the sons from the old castle of their ancestors. But what am I thinking about? There can be no risk in the case at all, for with such a firm, honest mind and pious trust that I feel I possess, I and everybody cannot fail to be now as always victorious over such ghostly antagonists. And yet, if after all it should be God's will that this evil power be enabled to work me mischief, then you must bear witness, cousin, that I fell in honest Christian fight against the spirit of hell, which was here busy about its fiendish work. As for yourself, keep at a distance. No harm will happen to you then. Our attention was busily engaged with diverse kinds of business until evening came. As on the day before, Francis had cleared away the remains of the supper and brought us our punch. The full moon shone brightly through the gleaming clouds. The sea waves roared, and the night wind howled and shook the oriel window till the panes rattled. Although inwardly excited, we forced ourselves to converse on indifferent topics. The old gentleman had placed his striking watch on the table. It struck twelve. Then the door flew open with a terrific bang, and, just as on the preceding night, soft, slow footsteps moved stealthily across the hall in a diagonal direction, whilst there were the same sounds of sighing and moaning. My uncle turned pale, but his eyes shone with an unusual brilliance. He rose from his armchair, stretching his tall figure up to its full height, so that, as he stood there with his left arm propped against his side and his right stretched out towards the middle of the hall, he had the appearance of a hero, issuing his commands. But the sighing and moaning were growing every moment louder and more perceptible, and then the scratching at the wall began, more horribly even than on the previous night. My uncle strode forward straight towards the walled-up door, and his steps were so firm that they echoed along the floor. He stopped immediately in front of the place, where the scratching noise continued to grow worse and worse, and said in a strong, solemn voice, such as I had never before heard from his lips, Daniel! Daniel! 
What are you doing here at this hour? Then there was a horrible unearthly scream, followed by a dull thud as if a heavy weight had fallen to the ground. Seek for pardon and mercy at the throne of the Almighty. That is your place. Away with you from the scenes of this life in which you can never more have part. And as the old gentleman uttered these words in a tone still stronger than before, a feeble wail seemed to pass through the air and die away in the blustering of the storm, which was just beginning to rage. Crossing over to the door, the old gentleman slammed it to, so that the echo rang loudly through the empty anteroom. There was something so supernatural almost, in both his language and his gestures, that I was deeply struck with awe. On resuming his seat in the armchair, his face was as if transfigured. He folded his hands and prayed inwardly. In this way several minutes passed, when he asked me in that gentle tone which always went right to my heart, and which he always had so completely at his command. Well, cousin? Agitated and shaken by awe, terror, fear, and pious respect and love, I threw myself upon my knees and rained down my warm tears upon the hand he offered me. He clasped me in his arms, and pressing me fervently to his heart, said very tenderly, Now we will go and have a good quiet sleep, good cousin. And we did so. And as nothing of an unusual nature occurred on the following night, we soon recovered our former cheerfulness, to the prejudice of the old baronesses, for though there did still continue to be something ghostly about them and their own manners, yet it emanated from a diverting ghost, which the old gentleman knew how to call up in a droll fashion. At length, after the lapse of several days, the baron put in his appearance, along with his wife and a numerous train of servants for the hunting. The guests who had been invited also arrived, and the castle, now suddenly awakened to animation, became the scene of the noisy life and revelry which had been before described. When the baron came into our hall soon after his arrival, he seemed to be disagreeably surprised at the change in our quarters. Casting an ill-tempered glance towards the bricked-up door, he turned abruptly round and passed his hand across his forehead, as if desirous of banishing some disagreeable recollection. My great-uncle mentioned the damage done to the Justice Hall and the adjoining apartments, but the Baron found fault with Francis for not accommodating us with better lodgings, and he good-naturedly requested the old gentleman to order anything he might want to make his new room comfortable, for it was much less satisfactory in this respect than that which he had usually occupied. On the whole, the Baron's bearing towards my old uncle was not merely cordial, but largely coloured by a certain deferential respect, as if the relation in which he stood towards him was that of a younger relative. But this was the sole trait that could in any way reconcile me to his harsh, imperious character, which was now developed more and more every day. As for me, he seemed to notice me but little. If he did take notice of me at all, he saw in me nothing more than the usual secretary or clerk. On the occasion of the very first important memorandum that I drew up, he began to point out mistakes, as he conceived in the wording. My blood boiled, and I was about to make a caustic reply when my uncle interposed, informing him briefly that I did my work exactly in the way he wished, and that in legal matters of this kind he alone was responsible. When we were left alone, I complained bitterly of the baron, 
who would, I said, always inspire me with growing aversion. I assure you, cousin, replied the old gentleman, that the baron, notwithstanding his unpleasant manner, is really one of the most excellent and kind-hearted men in the world. As I have already told you, he did not assume these manners until the time he became lord of the entail. Previous to then, he was a modest, gentle youth. Besides, he is not, after all, so bad as you make him out to be. And further, I should like to know why you were so averse to him. As my uncle said these words, he smiled mockingly, and the blood rushed hotly and furiously into my face. I could not pretend to hide from myself. I saw it only too clearly and felt it too unmistakably, that my peculiar antipathy to the baron sprang out of the fact that I loved, even to madness, a being who appeared to me to be the loveliest and most fascinating of her sex who had ever trod the earth. This lady was none other than the baroness herself. Her appearance exercised a powerful and irresistible charm upon me at the very moment of her arrival when I saw her traversing the apartments in her Russian sable cloak which fitted close to the exquisite symmetry of her shape, and with a rich veil wrapped about her head. Moreover, the circumstance that the two old aunts, with still more extraordinary gowns and beribboned headdresses than I had yet seen them wear, were sweeping along, one on each side of her, and cackling their welcomes in French, whilst the baroness was looking about her in a way so gentle as to baffle all description, nodding graciously first to one and then to another, and then adding in her flute-like voice a few German words in the pure sonorous dialect of Courland. All oh, this formed a truly remarkable and unusual picture, and my imagination involuntarily connected it with the ghostly midnight visitant, the Baroness being the angel of light who was to break the ban of the spectral powers of evil. This wondrously lovely lady stood forth in startling reality before my mind's eye. At that time she could hardly be nineteen years of age, and her face, as delicately beautiful as her form, bore the impression of the most angelic good nature. But what I especially noticed was the indescribable fascination of her dark eyes, for a soft, melancholy gleam of aspiration shone in them like dewy moonshine, whilst a perfect illusion of rapture and delight was revealed in her sweet and beautiful smile. She often seemed completely lost in her own thoughts, and at such moments her lovely face was swept by dark and fleeting shadows. Many observers would have concluded that she was affected by some distressing pain, but it rather seemed to me that she was struggling with gloomy apprehensions of a future pregnant with dark misfortunes, and with these, strangely enough, I connected the apparition of the castle, though I could not give the least explanation of why I did so. On the morning following the baron's arrival, when the company assembled to breakfast, my old uncle introduced me to the baroness, and as usually happens with people in the frame of mind in which I then was, I behaved with indescribable absurdity. In answer to the beautiful lady's simple inquiries, how I liked the castle, etc., I entangled myself in the most extraordinary and nonsensical phrases, so that the old aunts ascribed my embarrassment simply and solely to my profound respect for the noble lady, and thought they were called upon condescendingly to take my part, which they did, by praising me in French as a very nice and clever young man, as a garçon très joli, handsome lad. This vexed me, 
So, suddenly recovering my self-possession, I threw out a bon mot in better French than the old dames were mistresses of, whereupon they opened their eyes wide in astonishment, and pampered their long thin noses with a liberal supply of snuff. From the baroness's turning from me with a more serious air to talk to some other lady, I perceived that my bon mot bordered closely upon folly. This vexed me still more, and I wished the two old ladies to the devil. My old uncle's irony had long before brought me through the stage of the languishing lovesick swain, who in childish infatuation coddles his love troubles, but I knew very well that the baroness had made a deeper and more powerful impression upon my heart than any other woman had hitherto done. I saw and heard nothing but her. Nevertheless, I had a most explicit and unequivocal consciousness that it would be not only absurd, but even utter madness to dream of an amour, albeit I perceived no less clearly the impossibility of gazing and adoring at a distance like a lovelorn boy. Of such conduct I should have been perfectly ashamed. But what I could do, and what I resolved to do, was to become more intimate with this beautiful girl, without allowing her to get any glimpse of my real feelings, to drink the sweet poison of her looks and words, and then, when far away from her, to bear her image in my heart for many, many days, perhaps forever. I was excited by this romantic and chivalric attachment to such a degree that, as I pondered over it during sleepless nights, I was childish enough to address myself in pathetic monologues, and even to sigh lugubriously, Serafina, oh, Serafina, till at last my old uncle woke up and cried, Cousin! "'Cousin, I believe you are dreaming aloud. "'Do it by daytime, if you can possibly contrive it, "'but at night have the goodness to let me sleep.' "'I was very much afraid that the old gentleman, "'who had not failed to remark my excitement "'on the baroness's arrival, had heard the name, "'and would overwhelm me with his sarcastic wit. "'But next morning all he said, as we went into the justice hall, "'was, God grant every man the proper amount of common sense.' and sufficient watchfulness to keep it well under hand. It's a bad lookout when a man becomes converted into a fantastic coxcomb without so much as a word of warning. Then he took his seat at the great table, and added, Write neatly and distinctly, good cousin, that I may be able to read it without any trouble. The respect, nay, the almost filial veneration which the baron entertained towards my uncle, was manifested on all occasions. Thus at the dinner-table he had to occupy the seat which many envied him beside the baroness. As for me, chance threw me first in one place and then in another, but for the most part two or three officers from the neighboring capital were wont to attach me to them, in order that they might empty, to their own satisfaction, their budget of news and amusing anecdotes, whilst diligently passing the wine about. Thus it happened that for several days in succession I sat at the bottom of the table, at a great distance from the baroness. At length, however, chance brought me nearer to her. Just as the doors of the dining-hall were thrown open for the assembled company, I happened to be in the midst of a conversation with the baroness's companion and confidante, a lady no longer in the bloom of youth, but by no means ill-looking, and not without intelligence, and she seemed to take some interest in my remarks. According to etiquette, it was my duty to offer her my arm, and I was not a little pleased when she took her place quite close to the baroness, who gave her a friendly nod. It may be readily imagined that 
all that I now said was intended not only for my fair neighbour, but also, mainly, for the baroness. Whether it was that the inward tension of my feelings imparted an especial animation to all I said, at any rate my companion's attention became more riveted with every succeeding moment. In fact, she was at last entirely absorbed in the visions of the kaleidoscopic world which I unfolded to her gaze. As remarked, she was not without intelligence, and it soon came to pass that our conversation, completely independent of the multitude of words spoken by the other guests, which rambled about first to this subject and then to that, maintained its own free course, launching an effective word now and again whither I wanted it. For I did not fail to observe that my companion shot a significant glance or two across to the baroness, and that the latter took pains to listen to us. And this was particularly the case when the conversation turned upon music, and I began to speak with enthusiasm of this glorious and sacred art. Nor did I conceal that despite the fact of my having devoted myself to the dry, tedious study of the law, I possessed tolerable skill on the harpsichord, could sing, and had even set several songs to music. The majority of the company had gone into another room to take coffee and liqueurs. But unawares, without knowing how it came about, I found myself near the baroness, who was talking with her confidante. She at once addressed me, repeating in a still more cordial manner, and in the tone in which one talks to an acquaintance, her inquiries as to how I liked living in the castle, etc. I assured her that for the first few days, not only the dreary desolation of the situation, but the ancient castle itself had affected me strangely, but even in this mood I had found much of deep interest, and that now my only wish was to be excused from the stirring scenes of the hunt, for I had not been accustomed to them. The Baroness smiled and said, I can readily believe that this wild life in our fir forests cannot be very congenial to you. You are a musician, and unless I am utterly mistaken, a poet as well. I am passionately fond of both arts. I can also play the harp a little, but I have to do without it here in Oblanksitten, for my husband does not like me to bring it with me. Its soft strains would harmonize but ill with the wild shouts of the hunters and the ringing blare of their bugles, which are the only sounds that ought to be heard here. And, oh, heaven, how I should like to hear a little music! I protested that I would exert all the skill I had at my command to fulfill her wish, for there must surely without doubt be an instrument of some kind in the castle, even though it were only an old harpsichord. Then the Lady Adelheid, the Baroness's confidante, burst out into a silvery laugh, and asked, Did I not know that within the memory of man no other instrument had ever been heard in the castle except cracked trumpets and hunting horns, which in the midst of joy would only sound lugubrious notes, and the twanging fiddles, untuned violoncellos, and braying oboes of itinerant musicians? The Baroness reiterated her wish that she should like to have some music, and especially should like to hear me, and both she and Adelheid racked their brains, all to no purpose, to devise some scheme by which they could get a decent pianoforte brought to the castle. At this moment old Francis crossed the room. Here is the man who always can give the best advice, and can procure everything, even things before unheard of and unseen. With these words the Lady Adelheid called him to her, and as she endeavoured to make him comprehend what it was that was wanted, the Baroness listened with her hands clasped and her head bent forward, looking upon the old man's face with a gentle smile. 
she made a most attractive picture, like some lovely, winsome child that is all eagerness to have a wished-for toy in its hands. Francis, after having adduced in his prolix manner several reasons why it would be downright impossible to procure such a wonderful instrument in such a big hurry, finally stroked his beard with an air of self-flattery and said, But the land steward's lady up at the village performs on the manicord, or whatever it is the Atlantish name they now call it, with uncommon skill, and sings to it so fine and mournful-like that it makes your eyes red, just like onions do and makes you feel as if you would like to dance with both legs at once. "'And you say she has a pianoforte?' interposed Lady Adelheid. "'Aye, to be sure,' continued the old man. "'It comes straight from Dresden. Uh, "'Oh, that's fine,' interrupted the baroness. "'A beautiful instrument,' went on the old man, "'but a little weakly, for not long ago, "'when the organist began to play on it, "'the hymn in all thy works, "'he broke it all to pieces so that... "'Note.' in all thy works, by Paul Fleming, 1609-1640, one of the pious but gloomy religious songs of this leading spirit of the first Silesian school, returned to text. But he broke it all to pieces, so that, good gracious, exclaimed both the baroness and Lady Adelheid, so that, went on the old man again, it had to be taken to Arblank to be mended, and cost a lot of money. But has it come back again? asked Lady Adelaide impatiently. Ay, to be sure, my lady, and the steward's lady will reckon it a high honour. At this moment the baron chanced to pass. He looked across at our group, rather astonished, and whispered with a sarcastic smile to the baroness, So you have to take counsel with Francis again, I see. The baroness cast down her eyes, blushing, whilst old Francis, breaking off terrified, suddenly threw himself into military posture, his head erect and his arms close and straight down his side. The old ants came sailing down upon us in their stuff gowns and carried off the baroness. Lady Adelheide followed her, and I was left alone as if spellbound. A struggle began to rage within me between my rapturous anticipations of now being able to be near her whom I adored, who completely swayed all my thoughts and feelings, and my sulky ill-humour and annoyance at the baron, whom I regarded as a barbarous tyrant. If he were not, would the grey-haired old servant have assumed such a slavish attitude? Do you hear? Can you see, I say? cried my great-uncle, tapping me on the shoulder. We were going downstairs to our own apartments. Don't force yourself so on the baroness's attention, he said, when we reached the room. What good can come of it? Leave that to the young fops who like to pay court to ladies. There are plenty of them to do it. I related how it had all come about, and challenged him to say if I had deserved his reproof. His only reply to this, however, was, <clears throat> as he drew on his dressing gown. Then, having lit his pipe, he took his seat in his easy chair and began to talk about the adventures of the hunt on the preceding day, bantering me on my bad shots. All was quiet in the castle. All the visitors, both gentlemen and ladies, were busy in their own rooms dressing for the evening. For the musicians with the twanging fiddles, untuned violoncellos, and braying oboes, of whom Lady Adelheid had spoken, were come, and a merry-making of no less importance than a ball to be given in the best possible style was in anticipation. My old uncle, preferring a quiet sleep to such foolish pastimes, stayed in his chamber. I, however, had just finished dressing, when there came a light tap at our door, and Francis entered. 
smiling in his self-satisfied way he announced to me that the manacord had just arrived from the land steward's lady in a sledge and had been carried into the baroness's apartments lady adelheid sent her compliments and would i go over at once may be conceived how my pulse beat and also with what a delicious tremor at heart i opened the door of the room in which i was to find her lady adelheid came to meet me with a joyful smile the baroness already in full dress for the ball was sitting in a meditative attitude beside the mysterious case or box in which slumbered the music that i was called upon to awaken when she rose her beauty shone upon me with such glorious splendour that I stood staring at her, unable to utter a word. Come, Theodore, for according to the kindly custom of the North, which is found again farther south, she addressed everybody by his or her Christian name. Come, Theodore, she said pleasantly, here's the instrument come. Heaven grant it be not altogether unworthy of your skill. As I opened the lid, I was greeted by the rattling of a score of broken strings, and when I attempted to strike a chord, the effect was hideous, and abominable, for all the strings which were not broken were completely out of tune. I doubt not our friend the organist has been putting his delicate little hands upon it again, said Lady Adelheid, laughing. But the Baroness was very much annoyed, and said, Oh, it really is a slice of bad luck. I am doomed. I seem never to have any pleasure here. I searched in the case of the instrument, and fortunately found some coils of strings, but no tuning key anywhere hence fresh laments. Any key will do if the ward will fit on the pegs, I explained. Then both Lady Adelheid and the Baroness ran backwards and forwards in gay spirits, and before long a whole magazine of bright keys lay before me on the sounding board. Then I set to work diligently, and both the ladies assisted me all they could, trying first one peg and then another. At length one of the tiresome keys fitted, and they exclaimed joyfully, This will do! It will do! But when I had drawn the first creaking string up to just proper pitch, it suddenly snapped, and the ladies recoiled in alarm. The Baroness, handling the brittle wires with her delicate little fingers, gave me the numbers as I wanted them, and carefully held the coil whilst I unrolled it. Suddenly one of them coiled itself up again in a whirr, making the Baroness utter an impatient, Oh! Lady Adelheid enjoyed a hearty laugh, whilst I pursued the tangled coil into the corner of the room. After we had all united our efforts to extract a perfectly straight string from it, and had tried it again, to our mortification it again broke. But at last, at last, we found some good coils. The strings began to hold, and gradually the discordant jangling gave place to pure melodious chords. Ha! Ah, it will go, it will go! The instrument is getting in tune, exclaimed the Baroness, looking at me with her lovely smile. How quickly did this common interest banish all the strangeness and shyness which the artificial manners of social intercourse impose? A kind of confidential familiarity arose between us, which, burning through me like an electric current, consumed the timorous nervousness and constraint which had lain like ice upon my heart. End of Part One of the Entail Recording by Thomas Copeland